The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite movies, music, TV shows, and more. We are your two scholastic book fair staffers of spooky season. I'm Alex Heigl. I love you so much right now. And I'm Jordan Runtalk. And Jordan, today we are notching a TMI first by covering our very first book. Wow, that's an, that's our first book. That's nuts. Although I can't think of a better way to kick it off. It was this or Lolita. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this or War and Peace. Uh, <laughs> this or Myra Breckenridge. Uh, well, book series and TV show and movie. Oh. No, we're not talking about Lee Child's Jack Reacher series. We're talking about Mother Truck and Goosebumps. Yes. Baby. Jordan, what's your beef with the bumps? Oh, beef. No beef. Nothing but love. I I spent all my spare pocket money as a kid on these books. I literally used to measure chores in terms of how close <laughs> it would get me to obtaining a new Goosebumps book with my allowance. I, I was Incredible. never into Harry Potter. I was never into Animorphs. I was never into Lord of the Rings or anything like that. All about Goosebumps. Not even the choose-your-own-adventure versions of mm-hmm. Goosebumps. No, I wanted straight classic. Slappy from Another Living Dummy. One of the most perfect literary villains. Say Cheese and Die, and it's equally good sequel, Say Cheese and Die Again. Brilliant. <laughs> collecting these, it was like collecting trading cards or something. They just were so colorful, and the graphics were so evocative. You know, I mean, I hear yeah. all these stories about, you know, our parents' generation would buy Sgt. Pepper, the album, and go home on the bus and read the album cover and try to study it for clues and stuff, because it was just, there was so much happening in that cover. That's what I used to do on the ride home from the bookstore with the Goosebumps books. Like, the covers, oh, yeah. there was just was so much happening there. I loved it so much. The only downside for me was really the sort of vague sense of day after Christmas depression that I would feel <laughs> after finishing one of the books. What was it? Something like 62 books in the original series? I must yeah. have had at least 50, at very least. They gave me so much joy. I loved them. I think I was somewhere in there. I wrote earlier three dozen, but now I can't remember if I... Because I don't think you could always get them in order. So I think I was kind yeah. of catch-as-catch-can and hopped around. I th- oh, yeah. No, I... But also, you don't, you don't have to read them. You're not missing anything if you're, like, reading them out of order. Right. They weren't connected there were ones that didn't really interest me like i was never really into the animal ones i was more into the weird creepy like there was one about like a magic set with like a rabbit on the cover i remember and the the dummy ones and i was like the abominable snowman of pasadena like all these just kind of (laughs) weird like off kilter stories as opposed to like things with ooze and guts and creepy oh, yeah. animals and stuff. That wasn't really my thing. I think my favorite was Stay Out of the Basement because it has that iconic oh, cover yes. of the hand reaching, the plant monster hand reaching out of the basement. Haunted Mask is also really, really good one. Oh, That's another that like all time yeah. book cover stolen from Halloween 3, the movie. Oh. Everything's people just 
John Carpenter, man. Everyone knows him. Yeah, every episode. (laughs) Well, from the winding road that R.L. Stein took to become a fabulously wealthy children's horror magnate to the planned feature film adaptation of the series debut by horror film royalty to Stein's relationship with his fellow horror icon, Stephen King. Here's everything you didn't know about Goosebumps. Robert Louis Steinvinson, that's not his name, his real name is Robert Lawrence Stein, was born on October 8th, 1943 in Columbus, Ohio, and started writing short stories and jokes at the age of nine on a typewriter he found in the attic of his home. He says this constantly in interviews, I never wanted to be scary, I only wanted to be funny. (laughs) And then he would shortly after get a nicer typewriter for his bar mitzvah present. Finding an old typewriter in your attic sounds like the start of one of his books. Yeah, exactly. Uh, My family was very poor, he told The Guardian in 2015. There were five of us. We lived in this tiny little house on the edge of a very wealthy suburban community in Ohio, three doors from the railroad tracks. Yeah, again, sounds like a plot from one of his books. I love that. (laughs) I can't tell if he's putting this next interviewer on, but in an undated interview with The Strand magazine, he says he's never learned how to type properly. He said, I'm totally left-handed, and I just started typing with my pointer finger, nothing else, just one finger, not even two, and I've now (laughs) written 300 books on this finger. My typing finger is totally bent, totally curved from all these books. I don't know. My dad types in a similar way. Like, I know a lot of people who can do the hunt and peck method. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. maybe it's true. Uh, anyway, he says, I never planned to be scary. I always just wanted to be funny, told the Huffington Post and many, many other people. It's just like his stock soundbite answer. He said, I'd be typing up these funny stories, but I don't know why. And my mother would be outside my door and she'd say, what's wrong with you? Go outside and play. Stein also drew inspiration, as a lot of kids from his generation did, from the groundbreaking Tales of the Crypt comic series, as well as movies and The Twilight Zone. A lot of the Goosebumps titles are these 50s horror movies my brother and I saw every week, he told Huffington Post. It Came From Beneath the Sea became a Goosebumps book called It Came From Beneath the Sink, (coughs) that kind of thing. In particular, he cited a 1947 movie called Dead of Night, where a ventriloquist has a dummy that comes to life as being particularly formative on his signature character, Slappy, as well as a chapter in the original Pinocchio, where Pinocchio falls asleep with his feet on the stove and burns them off. I don't remember that. That book (laughs) is wild. Yeah, the original uh, Italian book. Yeah, I had it as a kid. No, I've never read that. Yeah, it's really upsetting. Cool. (laughs) I think he, like, squashes Jiminy Cricket or something. Yeah, it's great. It's pretty wild. Um, Like everyone his age, he loved uh, Twilight Zone, calling Rod Serling a hero of mine. Uh, his tastes are really, really funny. We'll talk about Ray Bradbury in a second. Um, he loved Kurt Vonnegut. He has also called P.G. Wodehouse his hero. Of like uh, the, the Jeeves and Wooster books? Yes, very much wow. so. Wow. Although, I mean, he, he's funny. Like, he yeah. does have that sort of English sardonic, almost Hitchcock-like sense of humor. I'm surprised it's he hasn't that, like, cited... Catskills insult comics for, for like, <laughs> Slappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking of like all the the Albert Hitchcock presents stuff, which I don't think he's really mentioned much of. But no. that seems to have that that wary. Like if you look at interviews with him, he has that kind of the way Hitchcock just kind of has this like wary, bemused look on his face yeah. as like he turns and there's like an axe in his head or something. Like yeah, he has that really dark, dry sense of humor in interviews and when you see him on camera that um, he's very English, I feel like. So I can actually see him being a P.G. Woodhouse fan. Um, Man, those dummies really (laughs) traumatized our parents' generation. Like, my mother forbade me from ever having a ventriloquist dummy in the house because, I mean, I get it. They're unnerving, like, in the same way that clowns are unnerving. But so many people of a certain age that I know are just like, hell no when it comes to those ventriloquist dummies, which... I was kind of drawn to because I love that whole vaudevillian variety show thing. Um, yeah, I was. I could see Dead that. Of Night? <laughs> yeah, right. Was Dead of Night like a big horror movie? Um, it's interesting because it, it's an anthology horror movie. The Dummy is uh, only okay. one part of it. Um, and there's like an H.T. Wells adaptation in it. It's interesting as a kind of a curiosity because uh, horror films were banned during the war. Like, you were just not allowed to make in them in Britain. Yeah. And it's from uh, 45. So they were, like, literally, you know, going wow. against the against the law there. <laughs> I was just wondering if that was, like, 
in the same way that Jaws made people afraid of going to the beach that oh, summer or Psycho made people afraid of taking showers and stuff. Like if that movie really made an indelible mark on a certain generation for being freaked out by ventriloquist dummies. I mean, Mar Marty Scorsese is a fan. Oh. <laughs> Back to RL. He said, I didn't read books until I was nine or ten, but I was a real comic book freak. He's talking to Time Magazine in June of this year. Hmm. There were those scary EC comics when I was a kid. Tales from the Crypt and The Vault of Horror. I loved those. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and one day my mom dropped me off at the library. The librarian said, Bobby, I know you like comic books. I have something else you might like. And she took me to a shelf of Ray Bradbury's stories. They were so wonderful. <laughs> Get your mind out of the gutter. They were so imaginative and so well-written and all had great twist endings. He also told the Strand that he liked Isaac Asimov and Robert Sheckley, and he was able to meet Kurt Vonnegut, who is also a favorite of his, because Kurt Vonnegut's daughter loved Goosebumps, and that got him invited over to the Vonnegut's for dinner. That's adorable. That said, Stein was, by his own admission, faint of heart. He said, I was scared of everything. He's talking to Barnes & Noble in 2014. Seriously, I was a very fearful kid. I think this is one reason why early on I stayed in my room typing out stories. I was very shy and very fearful. I'd be riding my bike at night, and when I was bringing it back, I always thought someone was lurking in the garage. I always knew something was in there, so I'd toss my bike in and run into the house. It was not a good way to be a kid being fearful, but it helped me later on. I can remember that feeling of panic and use it. I, he's either lying or he's over it because he's told people in as an adult he's told people like he I, he doesn't get scared anymore like he was he's talking about watching horror movies he said he really liked The Shining he talked about watching It Follows but he's like I'm just not afraid of things anymore so either he grew out of it or uh, he's lying to all of us um, so if you or a loved one can confirm that R.L. Stein is capable of feeling fear and can provide proof of that to us we'll Venmo you five bucks uh, so a young RL would actually distribute self-penned joke magazines around school to the point where his teachers actually asked him to stop. <laughs> he claimed to GQ last year that he'd written over a hundred joke books. Wow. Another fun fact from that interview is that he's written 40 books across the Fear Street and Goosebumps series that were set at summer camps. He never attended summer camp as a child. Did you ever sell stuff that you made to your elementary school class or middle school what? or high school? No. Really? No. What would oh, I have I got, been make? What would I have made? I got in trouble because I was really in the robots in like first and second grade, and I used to take soda boxes and cover them with tin foil and, and do all the stuff to make robots out of them. And I brought one in that I I put the box on a remote control car and kind of like very furtively used the remote control car, you know, the remote to drive it around. But it looked like this robot I'd made was like, if not sentient, like able to move, which was cool. So then I was, <laughs> I would like take orders to build some for my friends. But then of course I'd give it to them and the remote control car wouldn't be in it and they'd complain. And I got in trouble for doing that. No, um, perhaps, uh, perhaps predicting a life spent in the arts. I had absolutely no instinct for making money as a child. Um, <laughs> I got busted for fraud, so. <laughs> the two genders. Yeah. Uh, R.L. Stein attends Ohio State University in Columbus, and because his family was so poor, he had to live at home while attending school uh, with his brother as his roommate. But he found a new outlet for his comedic aspirations. He said at the time, every college had a humor magazine. He's talking to The Verge in 2015. Very few of them are left. They all pretty much died out in the 60s and were replaced by underground newspapers. Ohio State had this humor magazine called The Sundial, and I was the editor for three years. That's basically all I did in college. I never went to class. And I guess as the editor of the magazine, he was entitled to 22% of the profits, which I don't ever remember being a thing for any of the school papers <laughs> I was involved with. I mean, I'm it was sure a different there were no time. profits. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he used this money, his profits from the college paper, to move from Ohio to New York because he thought that if you wanted to be a writer, you had to live in New York. So Stein drove from Ohio in a white Corvair. Speaking of crazy. <laughs> I don't get sing. it. Corvair? It's uh, the book that Ralph Nader wrote, uh, Unsafe at Any Speed, about. There uh, was supposed to be really unsafe because I think the gas tank was I might be thinking of the Pinto, but I You're think thinking the of the Pinto, the one that uh, exploded in rear rear collisions. Yeah, this one I think it was in the front. There was something about the way it was made made it very unsafe, and I think it huh. exploded too. Yeah. Well, 
it got RL to New York and he sold it for $400 when he got there and got him uh, to his first apartment, which is on Waverly Place at the oh. bottom of a shaft. Uh, he, <laughs> shaft. He gave this, I, I guess, the air shaft in the apartment, like, you know, how the New York City apartment buildings are often built around a courtyard to get some air draft into the inner city, into the inner apartments. Oh, yeah. So I guess he would have been at the bottom. Uh, he gave this great interview to the Village Voice all about his time in New York uh, in 2012. He said, I'd have to call out to get the weather forecast because I couldn't see out the window. My parents would send me news clippings of bad things that happened in New York. Three killed in bars and say, how can you live in that jungle? He was, in fact, robbed at least once. I uh, told the AV club that his first adult purchase was a TV set, which was stolen from his apartment on the very same day he bought it. Oh, did he do David Lynch? Like, I feel like they would have been able to commiserate on these kinds of I mean, writing spooky tales while living in a spooky world. R.L. Stein still lives in New York. He's never left. He has a place in Sag Harbor, but he, I think he still lives on the Upper West Side. He loves going to the Met uh, Opera. Uh -huh. Something I learned um <laughs> about him while researching this what is his net worth roughly is, is it in the hundreds of millions it must be yeah yeah cool. good yeah deserves it <laughs> uh his first job as a writer in the big apple was making up interviews for woman who ran six movie magazines out of a brownstone on 96th i never saw her dressed he told the verge <laughs> she was always in this brown bathrobe she never went to the movies. She just did these magazines. I would come in in the morning and she'd say, do an interview with Diana Ross. So I'd sit down, type, 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 and I'd write an interview with Diana Ross. And she'd say, do an interview with the Beatles. Fine. Type, type, type. And we made it all up. <laughs> it was a great job. And I had to write three or four of them a day. So it taught me to write really fast. It didn't last very long. How is this legal? If you or a loved one has ever been harmed by inaccurate celebrity magazines, ghost written by Robert Louis Robert Louis Steinvinson, you may be entitled to, to take part in a class action, class action lawsuit being brought against him by the podcast. Too much information. Anyway, after that, Robert uh, RL, I can't it was weird calling him Robert Stein went to what he called the worst year of my life, which was as an editor at a trade magazine for the soft drink industry. He told The Verge, I would write about new syrups and flip-top cans, and there was a big debate back then over whether soda could come in plastic bottles. I had to cover bottlers' conventions. He made $140 a week, and hilariously, the offices were across the street from the candy industry journals. Jordan, this sounds like your dream job, actually. Which way? Eat both of them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You could moonlight for one. You could, you, yeah. Oh, man. Buddy. Uh, maybe even, uh, you know, contribute freelance articles at Diabetes Weekly. <laughs> in uh, RL's, I'm going to just gonna go with RL, in RL's AV Club interview, he also said that he had spent some time writing for a men's magazine, which he described as the worst job he ever had. He said, I think it was a sex and sadism kind of magazine because they would give me all kinds of photographs, and they were always photographs of women all tied up. They were very vile photographs, and I would write short stories to go with the photographs. I was kind of ashamed, and I wasn't really proud of what I was writing, so I wouldn't sign my name. I'd sign the name of my high school principal instead. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. In 1968 or 1969, Stein goes to work for Scholastic after answering an ad in the Times, and he becomes an editor for Scholastic Junior, writing history and geography articles and news stories, and eventually running his own magazine, Search. He said it was a history and current affairs magazine for junior high kids, but written at a fifth grade level. He's talking to Mental Floss in 2015. That's how I learned about reading levels. I learned all the vocabulary lists for fourth and fifth grade, and that's how I kept Goosebumps easy to read. So totally unrelated. Do you remember great illustrated classics? Oh, hell yeah, I series? had a load of those. Oh, I had so many. I love those books. They were For anyone who doesn't know, they were these abridged versions of every great piece of literature that you could imagine. There were hundreds of them. <laughs> and I didn't realize until I was shamefully old that they were rewritten. Like yeah, top same. to bottom. I was, very, I was very upset to learn that I had not actually read Robinson Crusoe. Oh, yeah. No, Great Expectations, all this stuff. I was uh, Alexander Dumas, I, uh, Victor Hugo. I thought I'd read all those by age, you know, 11. And turns out I read a very dumbed down version, but I love them anyway. In fact, to this day, I don't know which of those I've actually read versus like the real thing. Four years after search, Stein's dream came true when he was given bananas 
his own humor magazine for which he wrote under the name, yes, he was given bananas. A bag of bananas. <laughs> and he thought, gee, this is tops. I can move back to Ohio now. Um, yes, he was given lordship over bananas, which was a humor magazine under the imprimatur of Scholastic, for which he wrote under the name Jovial Bob Stein. <laughs> Some of the book titles from around this area that he uh, wrote included How to Be Funny, Miami Mice, and 101 Kid Jokes. He also wrote novelizations of movies like Ghostbusters 2, Big Top Pee Wee, and under different aliases, James Bond, Indiana Jones novels. Like, I think the certainty that you have read a Jovial Bob Stein work in everyone, I'm speaking in the general population, is approaching one like this guy has more written words out there than like it's like him and Joyce Carol Oates and Stephen <laughs> King at like a distant third that is crazy yeah anyway bananas was published by Scholastic Press for 72 issues between 1975 and 1984 and then apparently they fired him or it folded uh unclear that was like my life's dream and when it ended I thought I'd just coast the rest of my career he told NPR I had no idea what was in store for me I thought, God, I'm never going to shave again, never get dressed. It's to mental floss. Adding that around this time, he was making ends meet by writing Bazooka Joe comics and jokes for bubblegum wrappers, along with Rocky and Bullwinkle and Mighty Mouse coloring books. What a time to write professionally when you could write Bazooka Joe comics and jokes for bubblegum and earn a living wage. I just, that's, that's beautiful to me. <laughs> Yeah, different. It was a different time, perhaps a better one. Certainly a kinder, gentler time. <laughs> I'm always very curious about the people who write the fortunes for fortune cookies. Mm. I wrote a script once in college about somebody who, that was their job, and I, I still, I, I could have taken that as an opportunity to actually learn like what people who actually do write those, what their lives are like, but never did. I'm, I'm curious if, if you or a loved one writes fortunes <laughs> for fortune cookies, please get in touch, and Heigl will Venmo you five bucks. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. owes his big break in horror to another sadly unnamed horror writer. This is again in that Mental Floss interview. I was having lunch with Jean Fywell, the editorial director at Scholastic at the time. She just had a fight with a young adult horror writer and said, I'm never working with him again. You could write a good teen horror novel. How about it? 
I hadn't read any teen horror novels, but I didn't say no to anything in those days. I ran to the bookshop and bought a bunch of horror books. So, in 1986, Stein publishes his first novel, Blind Date, and it hit number one on the publisher's weekly list. And he follows it up with a few more in the same vein, The Babysitter, Beach House, Hit and Run, and The Girlfriend. I've never heard of any of these. I don't think they're part of the Fear Street series, but they are like, you know, they're under his name. Mm-hmm. Um... Bizarrely enough, he also finds time around this period of his life to co-create and script the Nickelodeon show Eureka's Castle. What? Yeah, I, I feel like the time. there's not a lot of people that know that. Uh, that not a lot of people know that. Yeah, yeah. jovial Bob Stein. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he wrote, he told the AV Club this came to him via producer named Kit Laburn, who, get this, remembered Stein from when they both worked on an animated project about the toy color forms. Remember Loved color forms. Yeah, you remember color forms? Well, they, Big they, time. they help Bob Stein get a job at Nickelodeon. How would you define like basically reusable stickers, right? Like yeah. that's the yeah. best thing yeah. I can. Yeah. And I guess this was like a promotional video that they made and and this guy Kit Laborn remembered Bob from it and <laughs> offered him the job of head writer on Eureka's Castle. Moral of the story I, is Kids, if you're a freelance writer, never turn down a job and be nice to everybody. Yeah, seriously. It's a good life lesson in general, but especially for freelancers. Wow. I'm just I'm I had to fact check this because I used to watch this all the time and I had absolutely no idea. Written by R.L. Stein, head writer. Damn, that's crazy. I'd always liked puppets. <laughs> he said in the AV Club interview. Uh, I don't know. I think that's creepy. Uh, anyway, the show debuted in 1989, which is the same year that he launched the Fear Street series. I actually didn't know that Fear Street predated Goosebumps, um, but they did. I've never by, heard by, of Fear Street. Fear Street is like the teen version of Goosebumps, where they're like, children are actually murdered. <laughs> yeah, they were adapted for Netflix, and the Netflix series is like super gory. Like, he, they asked him about it, and he was like, well, they really ratcheted up the gore. Um Apparently, he was also uh, Bob Jovial Bob Stein was the first editor of Nickelodeon magazine. You know that, and he hated Barney. That also came up in the course of my research. He hated Barney because he thought it was lazy compared to the other kids programming that they were doing. Uh, he, unsurprisingly, for a man who's written more words than God uh, by himself, he fa- called the collaborative process of TV the hardest thing to get used to. I'd write a script, I'd bring it to a script meeting at this long table with all the puppeteers, producers, directors, and all these people, and they would rip my script apart, and I would go home and write another one. And I wasn't used to that at all. I mean, that sums up my entire experience in my screenwriting program at school and college. (laughs) Well, Eureka's Castle ended in 1991, which is two years after Stein launched Fear Street. I mean, even if you don't like this dude's output, he was He's he worked. A, he is a worker. So uh, Eureka's Castle ends in 1991, which is two years after he launched Fear Street. Following his initial run of those one-off teen horror books that we talked about earlier, he explained to the Huffington Post that the publisher wanted one a year. And I thought, oh, one a year? There must be a way to do a series. And then we started thinking about location and that kind of thing. And I thought, if I can think of a good name for the series, I'll be off to a good start. I always wonder why they don't move to Happy Street. <laughs> It's funny, he, he's he's talked multiple in multiple interviews I've read about him being like, they're like, how do you come up with ideas? And he's like, I start with the title and, work, and just work from there. <laughs> he's been doing that since at least Fear Street. Uh, God love him. Fear Street is markedly different from what Goosebumps will become, mostly because of its violence. Uh, <laughs> he told the Village Voice, I killed a lot of teenagers and I wondered why I liked it so much. Then I real time quote right there. Then I realized it's because I had one at home. (laughs) Even better. (laughs) (laughs) But the series was an enormous success. I read that as of 2010, they sold over 80 million copies of just the Fear Street ones. That's not even factoring in Goosebumps. Uh, And that has to have grown because, like I said, they recently rebooted it for Netflix. I can't believe I've never heard of this series until this very moment. Wow. Did you read any of those when you were done with this? No, books, they or? were too they were too too scary. Too too adult for me. Yeah. Wow. Um so Stein was leery too, in the words of Mike Love, f- with a formula. 
I was very reluctant to do Goosebumps because I was doing Fear Street books for teenagers and I didn't want to mess up the older audience, he told Time. But it was actually Stein's wife, Jane, who actually was also the editor of the Goosebumps series, and her business partner, Joan Marika, who convinced them to do the Goosebumps series in the first place. He said, my editors, my wife and her partner, said, no one's ever done a series for 7 to 11-year-olds, scary books. We have to try it. And I didn't want to do it. This is him talking to the Today Show. But he said, that's the kind of businessman I am. (laughs) Finally, I said, all right, well, okay, if I can think of a good name for the series, maybe we can try a few of these. He's talking to Strand Magazine. And a few weeks later, I was reading TV Guide, and I was flipping through the TV listings, and there was an ad at the bottom of the page, and it said, it's Goosebumps Week on Channel 11. And there it was. I thought, God, that's perfect. It's the perfect name, right? So we tried it. I didn't have high hopes. No one had done it before. None of us really expected much. And I guess originally they were only contracted for four books, and uh, it brought out a new one every two months. Mm. And talking to the Boston Globe in 2015, he said, They just sat around. There was no advertising or hype. I didn't do any appearances. This was all before social media. So it was kids discovering the books and kids telling kids. It was entirely the Secret Kids Network. The second contract was for eight more books, and then it took off. And he continued to E! News in 2020. When Goosebumps first came out, no one bought them. They sat on the shelves for months. And today, with all the computers and everything, they would have been yanked off. They would have disappeared. But somehow, after three or four months, kids discovered them and took them to school and showed them to other kids. How did you first come across Goosebumps? I'm trying to remember. I don't remember. I think I just saw them in stores. Definitely like a Scholastic Book Fair. Oh, yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, probably me too. Um, Just being a little weirdo that I was, I was like... Just the art sold it to me. We'll get to the art. Oh, for real, we'll get yeah. to the art. Um, Stein's productivity is famous. At one point, he was writing a Goosebumps and a Fear Street novel every month. Uh, <laughs> he told the Village Voice, I never went out for lunch. I would do 20 pages a day. That's insane. It takes me a full day to do 15 pages of these episode outlines. Well, and I have all the information in front of me. We're researching, though. He's just banging out. Oh, that's even harder. Make stuff up. That's and even harder. I can do it. He's a, he told Mental Floss, I can do a Goosebumps outline, which is 25 to 30 chapters in three or four days. But if it's not going well, it might take me two weeks. In that outline, he told Scholastic, I create a cheat sheet of every character in the book. I write down the character name and a few characteristics, and that really helps me. Uh, I work backwards from most authors, he told HuffPo. Most authors have an idea for a book. They write, they're writing, and later on they think of a title. I have to start with a title. It leads me to the story. Kids always ask, everyone asks, where do you get your ideas? I want to say, where do you get your ideas? Because we all get ideas. Mine actually come from thinking of the title first. Where do you get your ideas, punk? <laughs> it's a very, very hostile response to the kids asking I mean, that I, question. I, he, the guy's been one of the biggest authors in the world for like 30 years. I, I think he's probably pretty sick of people asking where he gets his ideas. Like, yeah, true. You know. He also has a number of guiding rules for his books. Uh, for one, he told Huffington Post that he'll never set a book in New York because the suburbs are more relatable. He said, it's a superstition. I've never done it. A lot of kids don't know New York. They know a nice suburban backyard, but they don't know New York City. It's kind of elite in some ways, I think. I think it would make the stories more obscure for kids. And secondly, for Goosebumps, he said, I have to make the kids know that what's happening in the book couldn't really happen, that it's just a fantasy. And then when I write the Fear Street books or an adult book, I have to make people think it could happen. It's kind of the opposite. But he also admitted that he didn't have the formula nailed down right out of the gate and says that the first book in the series, Welcome to Dead House, some of these titles are still very bad, (laughs) was too scary. He told Time Magazine, I didn't have the right combination yet. It doesn't have the humor. But by the second book, Stay Out of the Basement, I got it. I just figured I don't really want to scare these kids. So anytime a scene gets really intense, I throw in something funny. And of course, there's a punchline at the end of every chapter. Yeah, Goosebumps introduced me to the idea that the first installment of any series is usually terrible because they're just like finding their footing. Welcome to Dead House was lame. Not Animorphs. Uh, well, you know who liked? Well, you know who liked Welcome to Dead House? George Romero. So oh, shows what you I, know. I stand corrected. Yes. Uh, cr- also crucial to Stein's process, his wife Jane. He told the Village Voice that he'd been in New York for two years when he met her at a party in Brooklyn that, quote, I didn't want to go to because it was raining and I thought, how am I going to get back from Brooklyn? 
40 years later, those of us who lived in Brooklyn were saying the same thing about going to parties in Manhattan. Uh, He said, when we got married, I was 25 and Jane was 22. I don't know what the hell she was doing. (laughs) Our first apartment when we got married was on 75th between Columbus and Amsterdam, he told the Village Voice. You wouldn't go to Amsterdam because it was too dangerous. I wonder if you ever saw John and Yoko up there. That's just a few blocks from the Dakota and where they used to hang out. That's a I weird, hope so. weird sliding doors kind of moment. Yeah. Um, to The Verge, he explained, we were both at Scholastic for many years. She was actually my boss for four years there. That was not great. I got lousy raises. She... <laughs> That's a Rodney Dangerfield. Oh line. yeah, yeah. He just—if you just imagine him as like a Catskills, like yeah. b- like borscht belt comedian, it's just become. He's very hilarious. She'd be embarrassed to give me a really good raise since we were married, so I got very bad raises. <laughs> so funny. Jane approves the chapter by chapter outlines that uh, Stein drafts of each book, and he still remembers getting one back from her. And in his words, up at the top of the outline were two words. It said "psychotic ramblings." That was it. Psychotic ramblings. I feel like that's been your notes on some of my outlines for that's, this. Show. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, she's a very tough editor, he continued. She's really smart and she's just too good. Too good an editor. You don't want an editor that good. I don't get away with anything. I always say she's like a hockey goalie. Nothing gets past her. Uh, <laughs> speaking of the Stein family, his son apparently had a cozy little side hustle while he was in elementary school and the books were at the height of their fame. He said, I think my son used to sell parts in Goosebumps for $10. He would come home and say, Dad, you have to put James in the next one. Or, Dad, you have to put Will in. And, of course, I always did. (laughs) That's possibly my favorite part of this entire episode. Are you kidding? If I was in Goosebumps, I would dine out on that for the rest of my natural life. That's so great. That kid is a genius. Yeah, yeah. Stein later told the Boston Globe, the book started in 1992, and around 94, 95, 96, I was the best-selling author in America. We sold 4 million books a month at that time. In 1993, 94, 95, the height of goosebumps, the USA Today uh, top 50 books list was usually 20 to 25 goosebumps books. This is R.L. Stein talking to The Verge. But the series, unfortunately, wasn't without its detractors. Stein, talking to the Boston Globe, said, In the beginning, there was a big resistance to the books because no one had ever done a horror series for 7 to 12-year-olds. And the covers were scarier than the books. That's very true. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Goosebumps series landed near the top of the American Library Association's Challenged Books of the 90s list. At number 15, it was apparently challenged more than Madonna's Sex, The Anarchist Cookbook, and wow. Howard Stern's private parts. But you know what was number one on that? The Scary Stories to Tell the Dark series. Probably the only other children's book horror series that beats Goosebumps in terms of actual horrifying impact. I never read those. Were they oh, really buddy. creepy? Oh, my God. Well, more so. Yes, they were. But maybe more so. You want to talk about illustrations? Uh, I do remember the, like skull appearing out of the smoke on the cover or something yeah yeah those books holy crap i mean just like grisly skulls and well, that's the thing i was never really like a, a a horror guy or into spooky stuff as a kid all that said stein uh initially thought he said he thought there would be more protests than there were Uh, He said to the Hollywood reporter, I thought people would be very reluctant, but partly because the covers were so much more garish and scary than the stories. A lot of parents were upset. They were trying to get goosebumps out of school libraries, and that happened quite a bit in the early days before people really knew what it was. But it happened a lot less than I thought. (laughs) Speaking of those covers, they are the work of an illustrator named Tim Jacobus, who in 1991 had been working for Scholastic for a few years. The publisher offered him and another illustrator, Jim Thyssen, each a cover to audition for Goosebumps. And Jacobus was assigned Goosebumps number one, the aforementioned Welcome to Dead House. He got a whole chapter as background, which would later winnow down to a single paragraph of description as his working relationship with Stein evolved. That's all you got out of Jovial Bob was one graph to write the whole cover <laughs> off. Uh, I like Tim's art right from the start, Stein told uh, the Aiga, or the, what is that, the American Institution of Graphic Artists, GraphicArt.org? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. I thought Tim captured just the right level of scariness for the age group. We didn't really want to terrify kids, but we did want to excite them with our covers. I was most happy that his covers captured the humor of the stories as well as the horror. 
Each cover took Jacobus around 35 hours to produce. The format was always square on a 20 by 20 inch canvas, sans the iconic Goosebumps logo, which was created in-house at Scholastic, so that was not his work. He usually produced around three 8 by 10 sketches for each cover before developing a color study and turning to his acrylic-based paints and an airbrush on a slightly textured number 80 illustration board for the final product. That is way more detail than I thought I was ever going to get to give everyone about the process behind making Goosebumps covers. Uh, Sometimes, when the characters from the books were featured in the design, he was given a budget for artistic models, although in one of the most famous ones, The Haunted Mask, he simply used his niece. I mean, I'm glad you gave all that information because these are, I feel like these are like the H.R. Geiger uh, illustrations for young millennials. Like these are seared into my my cortex. They're so, <laughs> so evocative. But naturally, because these books were for kids, there were some constraints. Blood was green, not red. No kids were shown getting injured. No kids were shown getting killed. There were no weapons except for an executioner's axe in a Night and Terror, Night and terror Tower. Tower. I remember yep. that, yeah. Uh, Jacoba said he only ever had to make one significant change to a painting at the publisher's request. On the cover of Revenge of the Lawn Gnomes, he said that uh, one of the title characters was shown picking his nose. And at the last minute, somebody said, I don't want to hear any blowback from teachers or moms or parents. Let's just change it. But aside from that, they they gave him his head. And uh, all of his designs are fairly iconic, I would say. Yeah, he says uh, a couple of them are still at um, I think on display in Scholastic. Cool. Um, before we get to the next part of this, I just want to drop that as of at least 2008. I dropped the ball. I didn't look updated sales figures. Stein's books have sold over 400 million copies worldwide. Is there any kind of list of like most books moved by a single author? Like that's gotta be. I know Stephen King. I'm sure James Patterson. Uh, uh, well, it's it's Shakespeare. Oh, okay. Yeah. Un- unfortunately. I would say it's bad that I'm almost like, doesn't count, but... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, best-selling fiction authors. Oh, no, he's on there. He is, on, at least on Wikipedia's. Um, he's under Dean Koontz. He's under... Mm. Wow, it's William Shakespeare and Agatha Christie, number two. Oh, uh, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, Danielle Steele is up there. Uh, J.K. Rowling, obviously. Dr. Seuss. Uh, Tolstoy. Dean Koontz. Horatio Alger. Rob Jovial Bob Stein. <laughs> Right under Nora Roberts and right above Alexander Pushkin. He's above Stephen King, though. He beat out Stephen King. I can't believe both of them are under Dean Koontz. Yeah. Something about that seems wrong. Anyway. um, Do you know what they're called? uh, Piccoli Brividi in Italy, which means little shivers. No. Hmm. That's beautiful, (laughs) if not slightly obscene. One thing that I find really sweet is that he would answer every handwritten snail mail letter he got from kids at the height of his fame. Not the ones that came in his emails, not the ones that were typed, but if some kid actually wrote him out a letter, he would answer it. He said, that's hard for kids. It's time consuming and hard to write a letter, so they deserve an answer. Every kid gets an answer. Aww. Did you ever write to anybody? Nope. Really? Nope. I wrote to Paul McCartney. And I bet like you did. An eleven-year-old, and I got a form letter back explaining that if he answered everybody's letter, he wouldn't have time to make music. Which fair, soften the blow. Yeah. <laughs> Stein's favorite was a kid who wrote him a letter that read simply, in its totality, "Dear R.L. Stein, I've read forty of your books, and I think they're really boring." <laughs> did you write that? <laughs> no. Ah. <laughs> uh... We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So, with such insane sales numbers, of course, media adaptations were inevitable. Stein told Cinema Blend in 2018, we had a movie deal to do a Goosebumps movie, like at the height of Goosebumps, back in 94, 95, around there. And we actually had a deal with Fox to do a movie, and Tim Burton was going to be the producer. We had a big meeting, and I thought, oh, that'll be great, Tim Burton and Goosebumps, it'll be great. We had a nice meeting with him, and we had a great time, and we talked about what we should do. And then nothing happened. That's how this always goes. He got involved in some Superman project that also never happened, Stein continued. He was going to do Superman, and then we never heard from him again, and that was the end of it. Stein is referring to Superman Lives, an early reboot attempt for the Man of Steel post-Christopher Reeves that was going to star Nicolas Cage as Superman. Got as far as screen tests with Cage in the costume. You can Google it. There are pictures of Nick Cave, Nick Cage in the Superman. I almost said Nick Cave in a Superman oh, costume. I would that's a very see different. Nick Cave that's Superman. a very different thing. Uh, Our friend Allie would very much like that. <laughs> um, yeah, it, and and it died obviously. Uh, but even crazier than that was apparently Night of the Living Dead. Uh, Day of the Dead, Dawn of the Dead, many of the dead. Dawn of the Dead. No. Uh, but yes, <laughs> iconic horror director George Romero was attached to a Goosebumps movie at one point. This was to have been produced by 20th Century Fox's family film division, and Romero's Goosebumps uh, movie began with the Fox family's vice president, Kevin Bannerman, who uh, I guess thought he would do a great job with it. And um, there is, <laughs> this is awesome. There's a George A. Romero archival collection at the University of Pittsburgh. It's where he sent his archives when he died. Cool. Um, And this is in there. This is a letter from Romero to the Fox vice president from in 1995. Um, And it seems that Bannerman suggested a number of Stein novels, Goosebumps books for him to read. And Romero picked Welcome to Dead House, the first one. Uh, And it also reveals in the course of this letter that, Romero had wanted to make films for younger audiences and that he'd been a fan of Goosebumps, even having read several of them to his 12-year-old son. Um, And he did pen a rough outline for this adaptation, which, a rough outline, it's basically a complete screenplay. It's a 124-page outline. Um, And it's out there for people to read. It's The plot is different. but And of course, it's set in Pittsburgh, <laughs> but, it, but it just never happened. Until 2014, I think... Yeah, I don't. I didn't. I don't give a shit about those movies. Well, I'll, I'll I'll wave my hand in their general direction later. But I think it died until two thousand eight. I think Columbia let the rights. Columbia acquired the rights to the film in two thousand eight, and then the Jack Black movie didn't even get made until like twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen. So yeah, they just let it die. Development hell, baby. So now we must come to the Goosebumps TV show, which aired from October 1995 to November 1998. You said you didn't watch this. Not at all. No, I thought it was like a watered down version of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And in a sense, it was a competitor. Oh, in a sense, it was watered down because they wanted it to. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Steve Levitin, 
The show's producer told a site called Conventional Relations for their oral history of the show that he'd been producing a TV series called My Secret Identity with Scholastic. And after the contract for that show was up, Scholastic told him about the runaway success of Goosebumps at a meeting and gave him a few of the books. He flew back to Toronto, and yes, like Are You Afraid of the Dark, the Goosebumps show was a maple syrup and poutine-drenched production of the Great White North. (laughs) And he called them, and he wanted to make a TV show. Levitin would go on to create Modern Family. Wow. (laughs) And some other stuff, including my beloved Just Shoot Me. You created Just Shoot Me? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. A a young me's glimpse into the high-paced, exciting world of magazine writing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Made me want to write for a magazine. Um, I didn't know that was a goal of yours. I just no, kind of fell into it. No, it wasn't. I just... uh, No. I just... I think I've talked about this before, but, like, my sitcom... Like, my whole family loved The Simpsons, but, like, my sitcoms were not Friends. I did not watch Seinfeld. I watched Frasier and mash and just shoot me and uh will and grace (laughs) like three out of four of those are like top notch yeah well i mean it's just funny like everyone a lot of people our age are like friends or um seinfeld and i'm like no just watch a lot of frazier and watch a lot of just shoot me (laughs) um levitin said the first response was i don't think we can make a deal with you because fox bought the movie rights Turned out Fox did not buy the TV rights, though. And oddly enough, he said, once we got the TV rights, Fox Kids Networks was our broadcaster. Uh, The show's writing team was led by Billy Brown and Dan Angel, and they had a deal with Stein where he could approve or reject every script based on their first drafts. So none of these got made without Jovial Bob's stamp of approval on them. (laughs) I'm going to call him that forever. It's just too funny. Here you go. Early conversations concerned how this show would differentiate itself from Are You Afraid of the Dark, which hilariously entailed poaching writer-director-producer Ron Oliver from that show. So yes, this guy went over from Are You Afraid of the Dark to Goosebumps. Um, Levitin said, Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark were in the same genre, but Goosebumps always had an ironic, humorous, tongue-in-cheek self-consciousness that Are You Afraid of the Dark didn't have. I'm glad we went in that direction because I don't think there would have been enough room for two completely similar shows. Sure. I respect that. I think it's why I didn't like the Goosebumps ones. It always felt mm. like it was kind of mugging and winking to the camera and trying to like, you know. Like a making... borscht belt comedian. Okay. Yes. Like as jovial Bob Stein intended it to be. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Okay. <laughs> That's Yes. Uh, Like Are You Afraid of the Dark, every episode of Goosebumps required a new cast, which meant that, as Stein later told The Verge, they went through, quote, every Canadian kid there was. He added, I would do book signings here in the United States. Kids would be in line and they'd say, I'm an actor. How can I be on the Goosebumps show? And I would say, you have to be Canadian. And every time the kid would say, what's that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also like Are You Afraid of the Dark, a young Ryan Gosling appears in an episode of Goosebumps and Hayden Christensen and Underworld star Scott Speedman. 1960s Batman star Adam West also guest starred at one point. That's a great get. Yeah. Uh, excitement around the show was so high it went to production without a pilot, which is insane and unheard of. Levitin said once we got the rights to do TV series, there were already a number of broadcasters interested in picking it up. They didn't want to see a pilot. They wanted to go right into production. Fortunately, they went into production with The Haunted Mask, which is one of the most iconic Goosebumps titles, uh, and one apparently inspired by Stein watching his young son get trapped in a Frankenstein's monster Halloween mask. (laughs) Hilarious. Uh, He's called it his best Halloween story and his favorite episode of the show. Um, the plot of the book is basically that Halloween mask uh, starts to take over a young girl's personality. She's having trouble removing it from her, getting it off her, and it starts to take her over. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> she, she, she just become, like, really mean. Yeah. 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 She, but the man, this, this one actually scared me because, like, the mask makeup that they used on this is so good and so creepy. Um, yeah. <laughs> We were talking earlier about some of the crappier goosebumps. Jovial Bob is aware of them. Uh, he, he admitted to THR, there's some bad ones. Not all can be great. I looked at Go Eat Worms recently, and I was like, that's a horrible book. It's not good at all. There was another one that had a great evil dog on the cover called The Barking Ghost. 
that's a horrible book. <laughs> I love that he's not just like, yeah, it wasn't that great. He was like, no, it's horrible. It is a great cover. It's like one of the more freaky covers. Um, the girl who played the lead in The Haunted Mask, Catherine Long, she was a trooper for this episode. She spent two or three hours getting into the makeup for the mask in the pilot. And that is her actual voice reading those lines. It was not ADR'd. It was not manipulated in post-production. That is her actual voice doing the creepy monster voice. Oh, and she bit into an actual worm for the shot in which her character bites into a worm hidden in a sandwich. That was not fake. Apparently, all of this added into an episode that was so scary, Fox rejected the initial cut, saying that they would not show it to children. All right, how did she bite into a worm? Wasn't Where was the Humane Society on that? Like Not, not in Canada, baby. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't actually know that for a fact, but I assume... Uh, when the episode premiered on October 27th, 1995, it was watched by almost 8 million households in the U.S. It sold nearly 3 million copies when it was released on VHS the following year. Now, much like Are You Afraid of the Dark, production was essentially tasked with creating a new short film every week. SFX production artist Ron Stefaniak, who's gone on to work on stuff like Bride of Chucky, explained, we only had five days to build these things. We were building all the way through the day and all the way into the night. Then it was raced off to set and puppeteered by the same people. Sometimes the shooting day would go on for 15 or 16 hours, and then there'd be an hour and a half of celebrating after it was done. Then in eight hours, the whole thing starts up again. That went on for four years. <laughs> One of the episodes that went above and beyond in terms of location, at least, was the two-part special A Night in Terror Tower, which was partially filmed at Toronto's Casa Loma, which is a gothic revival castle built in the 1910s by an eccentric, wealthy Canadian. I looked it up, and I didn't feel like getting into the history of this thing, but the one architectural detail that has stuck in my mind since reading it was that it boasted an oven so large it could cook an ox, which I, I was like... I, I can only imagine that they, they, they tested that. I was like, why is that the standard of measurement? Think of a bigger... Are you going to cook a whale? <laughs> Use your head. <laughs> Apply yourself. Um, that that castle has been seen in X-Men, Strange Brew, Chicago, uh, Scott Program vs. The World, and Crimson Peak, among many others. Other episodes were significantly more low-tech. For the episode Bad Hair Day, which involved the talking rabbit, which was voiced by Whose Lines It Anyway star Colin Mockery, which Colin, I love. friend of the pod, yes. Colin Mockery. Yes. Uh, production took meetings with CGI artists, an animatronics team, and an animal wrangler. And the animal wrangler ended up getting the job, and the talking rabbit effect was achieved by having him stand off camera and squirting the rabbit with sugar water, causing its mouth to move. Again, where is the Humane Society on this one? <laughs> I, I can't remember who's telling the story. It's either uh, Stefaniak or, um, or uh, Levitin, but he talks about this meeting where he's like, they had three separate meetings. The CGI people came in and were like, all right, we'll, we'll do it this way. And it was going to be expensive and it was going to be coming in late because he was like, that's just how the technology was at the time. It was super expensive and they would never finish on time. And then the animatronics people came in and were like, all right, I can build you this robot rabbit and like blah, 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 blah. And they and but it's going to be this amount of money. And then the animal wrangler came in and was like, I can make that rabbit talk. How, where do you where do you where do you need it? <laughs> he just set it up and started <laughs> squirting sugar water into its face from off screen. <laughs> Uh, you need a rabbit to talk? I can get you a rabbit. I'll, I'll, I'll get him. <laughs> Don't ask questions. Uh, <laughs> now we get must a rabbit, come to dude. The... I can get you a rabbit. <laughs> I get you a rabbit by 3 p.m. today. Uh, now we must come to the true star of the series, the true king of all media, Slappy the Dummy, baby. Yes. Oh my God, yes. Slappy's book was 1993's Night of the Living Dummy, and he went on to appear in more books and media than any other Goosebumps character, including three episodes of the TV series, both movies, and he even got his own book series in 2017 called Slappy World. What? I No way. I, I didn't know that. Here's a quick sidebar on evil dummies in, uh, in media. Um, there's The Great Gabbo, 1929's which is where uh, the Simpsons get their uh, their ventriloquist dummy from. Uh, Danny Kay started Knock on Wood, 1954. Oh, right. um, then we start getting into spooky dummies. The Glass Eye, 1957 episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The Dummy, 
1962 episode of The Twilight Zone, Caesar and Me, a 1964 episode of The Twilight Zone, 1964's Devil Doll, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins in 1978 stars uh, in Magic, based on a screenplay by William Goldman about an evil ventriloquist tummy. Uh, and then we get into stuff like the Puppet Show, which is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, yeah. Wow. And rounding out our evil dummy list, James Corden. <laughs> Topical humor. <laughs> Man, well done. Thank you. <laughs> Slappy comes to life when a phrase, Karu Mari Odana Loma Molanu Karano, which supposedly translates to, you and I are one now, is Ooh. recited. Yeah. Much like how Chucky transfers his soul back and forth in the Child's Play franchise, which is great because you just hear Brad Dorif doing his Danny DeVito impression. He's like, <laughs> grant me the power, I beg of you. It's so funny. We've been watching a bunch of those this for Halloween season, and, and Brad Brad Dourif, tremendous actor, one of my favorites, but he is just doing Danny DeVito as in those early episodes because you forget he's in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, so he must have gotten some. He must have been. Oh ha- he God. had that Danny DeVito impression in his back pocket. Yeah. Don't with the Chuck. Uh similar to those movies. Uh, by which I mean the Child's Play movies, uh, Slappy was animated with a combination of puppetry and a young girl in a costume, which is always hilarious in the Child's Play movies because you get these really well-done animatronics and then you just get, like, clearly they just, like, shoved a toddler in the wardrobe and were like, (laughs) run down the hallway. (laughs) But... Uh, because he was Slappy was built like an actual ventriloquist dummy, as in out of wood, he weighed considerably more than a normal puppet. So imagine having to be under like a table holding a ventriloquist dummy up for like hours at a time, puppeteering it. That must have sucked. <laughs> um, well, and- they just have like arms like bowlers, where it's just one really thick arm, like muscular <laughs> yeah. arm. Um, or like the arm wrestling championship guys. <laughs> ungodly ripped and then just like a weak normal normal arm um stefaniak is often erroneously credited as providing the voice of slappy that is not true he told conventional relations that the actual voice actor once called him and left him a rather snotty message (laughs) blaming him for going around taking credit for the role of slappy so just once set the record straight i actually don't even know the guy's name so Sounds like he's snotty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sadly, the fates of both the book series and the show wound up becoming intertwined. Oliver said that after four seasons, he said, I think it ended because the book stopped selling at a certain point. The sales dropped and they were like, well, I guess that's the end of that. Levitin, for his part, posited, I think what happened was Fox as a kids network was coming to an end. A few years after it stopped being a kids network. Other things came along that were more lucrative for networks. Pokemon and Power Rangers were toys. That's big business. Goosebumps was just a TV show, and even though we tried to get merchandising going, there's just no defining character. There's no one look for Goosebumps, other than Slappy. Hmm. Uh, St- Jovial Bob was a fan of the show, <laughs> but he uh, he also liked the two movies, so I don't know. He might just be towing the party line. I don't know anything about those movies. Um, I don't care to. <laughs> I Jack after Black- our time. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, they're not really the focus here. They apparently well reviewed. Um, Jack Black plays a caricatured version of Earl Stein in it. I guess he got Stein's blessing to portray him that way. Um, Wear a jean know. jacket and leap uh, around too. They, 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 yeah, they smack of weaponizing millennial nostalgia to me, which is what we do. No, I I take offense to that. We we cultivate new appreciation on what's already there. We try to we try to educate. We don't try to sucker people into buying something new that was just done in the same flavor of some beloved classic movie or TV show. No, we we, we cultivate appreciation. And now, folks, stay tuned for our episode on Hocus Pocus. Oh, precipitated by Hocus Pocus 2 available now to stream on Disney plus Disney. No, can we have our check? Not yet? precipitate, not <laughs> precipitated by that. It's precipitated, but a lot of people wanted to hear about that because it oh, meant something to them. And even if it didn't mean something to us, it meant know, something to them. I, I just wanted to hear you choke on your impotent rage. Um, <laughs> 
Jovial Bob told The Wrap in 2015 that there were like 17 or 18 scripts being bandied around for that movie at one point, though he may have been exaggerating. He did single out the film's Danny Elfman score uh, as being particularly noteworthy. So, yeah, he would. Maybe he's a big Oingo Boingo fan. I can absolutely see that. (laughs) Um, And then the Fear Street series, which came out on uh, Netflix recently. So that's also brought... uh, old 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 jovial bob back into the spotlight uh it was so he said it was so graphic that it shocked him but he said it was well well staged and well directed i didn't know where else to put this oh maybe we should have put it when i was talking about uh stephen king earlier but comparisons between the two of them were inevitable and uh but despite both being millionaire horror book authors they only met once and this is uh stein talking to the guardian the one time i ever met him four or five years ago He never leaves Maine. (laughs) We had a nice talk. I said to him, Steve, do you know that a magazine once called me a literary training bra for you? And he said, yes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) He also said that at that point, Steve gave him, Steve, Stephen King gave him crap for using every single possible permutation of an amusement park horror. (laughs) He said he's used up all the good ideas. Uh, that's all I got on Goosebumps. I, I don't know anyone who, 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 who dislikes Goosebumps? Who's coming against We'll Goosebumps? find out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, they're not Chaucer, but not everything has to be. And, and I, I really came away with, from this with a, 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 a deeper, deeper and more abiding love for Jovial Bob Stein. I, oh, big time, yeah. He just seems like a chill dude. He's still in love with his craft. He still loves writing. And, you know, he's got the right view on it. Uh, I want to leave you with a quote from actually just June of this year. He told today, What's most satisfying to me is the millions of kids who learn to read from Goosebumps and who learn to really enjoy reading. Now on Twitter and everywhere, I hear people saying, I wouldn't be a librarian today if it wasn't for your books. I hear things like, I wouldn't be a writer today. I just had my first book published, thanks to you. Or, thanks for getting me through a difficult childhood. That's the most satisfying thing. You never get tired of hearing that. Good on you, jovial Bob. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.